0: we live in an offended culture. Would anybody agree with that statement? Are you offended that I said that out loud? Yeah. We live in an offended culture. And, and, I, and I honestly think that the furthest you have to go for this statement to be known as true is a thing called Facebook, right? Like Facebook is this breeding ground of all of these offenses and people getting offended and then taking the time to post about how they're offended. And then other people comment on their offense and tell them how they're offended about their offensiveness and all those different things, right? This is what the Facebook world does to us. And if it wasn't bad enough that we you You could have freedom of speech and posting all these things... Facebook actually came out with this thing called a dislike button, right? You had the like button, and I remember people I remember people saying, like, you know, when I post pictures of my kids or something, they'd be like, man, I wish there was a love button, you know, because I love this. And then they came up with that, but at the same time they came up with that, they also came up with, like, the mad emoji face, right? Which is the dislike button, for you to show your disdain for whatever they just posted. And we've seen this, man, like, in the presidential election uh, kind of recently i mean there was like facebook was a breeding ground for all of these offensive things and these dialogues and these comments about you know what you believe and what you don't believe and there was this back and forth and i i remember reading some of these threads of comments and replies and it was literally like little kids fighting you know what i'm saying like like we think that a post in reply to somebody else's post is actually going to bring us to a conclusion, right? You know, and, and, and how selfless of us to be able to bring our inf- offense to everybody else so they can know how they offended us. That's really selfless of us, right? And so it reminded me of little kids fighting. And I know a few things about that. Look at Look at these two cute little kids. These are my kids. Um, I really just find any uh opportunity to share their pictures, but you know they 're sweet and innocent right here, posing for this picture and and then you know what happens is really quickly it goes from this to this <laughs> and it 's still cute, but it makes sister mad you know and and then when she 's mad, it goes from this to this. <laughs> and it's like this epic battle ensues of two kids fighting and this is what i feel like facebook is like and what i love about kids fighting is anything is fair game to be used as a weapon right like you you see here like this is a nice little beanie baby baby pug uh, Zion has one of these. He named it Otis after our pug. He's very creative like that. And he, he has this pug and he uses this as like a grenade to launch at his sister across the room and make it land on her head. He thinks it's hilarious, So, but he uses it a weapon. And Oakland does the same thing. You might see a pile of necklaces here, but what Oakland sees is this is the very sling and stone that David used to take down that giant Goliath. And now I will take down my brother using this necklace, you know, like, and that she can't say that, but that's what she's thinking as she slings it. She can barely walk, but she can sling a necklace, right? And throw it at her brother. Some of you guys see here a barrel of monkeys. What Zion sees is a barrel of ninja stars to be flung at his sister. But my favorite, my favorite about all of these things, the toys that they use is, and I blame Brooke on this. She bought Zion a lightsaber which sounds good, right? It just makes sounds and he kind of can do this. No, this is a weapon, all right? And he may not have the force, but he uses force whenever he has this in his hands to hit his sister with it. And it's hard. They can use anything as a weapon. And here's the deal. When we're offended or we get into these little tiffs and these fights, maybe we don't use like little toys as weapons, but we use our words and we use passive aggressiveness, and we use, you know, these political posts or passive aggressive posts, whatever it might be, because we live in an offended culture and we have to take offense and we have to be able to react to that offense, right? Because we have freedom of speech. And so we might think that that being offended or living in an offended culture, that, that, that protects us in here in the church, but I would say that the church is not immune to this offended culture, right? And sometimes, sometimes it actually hurts worse when you're offended in the church, right? Because we're called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to love one another. And when someone offends us in the church, you're like, how dare you? You're supposed to have the love of Christ. Christ compels you, right? And you're throwing holy water on them because you're like, this didn't happen in the church. But often we hold people to a higher standard sometimes than we even hold ourselves, The church is not immune to this. And you know why? Because the church is messy. The church is messy. We are a bunch of messy, broken people getting into a room together, called to live in community with one another, called to do things together and serve the kingdom of God together, and we are messy and broken. So what do you think is going to happen? We're going to break things. We're going to make messes of things. Mark Iacchinelli reminds us that the church is not made up of whole people, rather of the broken people who find their wholeness in a Christ who was broken for us. This is the picture of the church, that we are broken and we are desperate for a need, in need of a savior that would make us whole. And so church is messy Church is messy and we make messes of things and we get offended and we offend other people and we constantly miss the mark of what Christ called us to, which is the very essence of sin, right? And so Jesus knew this. He knew that, that we were gonna continue to be messy, he knew that we were gonna continue to to mess up, and so in his sovereignty he spoke a lot into how we could live at peace with one another. How we handle sin in the church. And, and today we're going to look at a passage. If you would turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that isn't widely taught. I've been in church for a, for a while and, and it, it's not one of the, you know, in the top 10 messages that I've heard, the top 10 passages that you hear spoken about, but we're going to look at it today because in this passage, Jesus gives us a framework of how we're called to handle the mess, how we're called to handle the brokenness. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17. Let's read it aloud together. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, then take two, one or two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And that's a fun passage, right? That's hard, that's hard. You are calling out sin and brokenness and hurt in people. Let me ask you this, and I'm asking myself the same question. When someone offends you or sins against you or hurts you or just plain out makes you mad in the church, what's, what's your typical response? What do you do with that? Because we're in the church, like we have to handle it probably differently than we would out in the world. What, what's our response when, when we feel hurt in the church by people in the church, even by a pastor in the church? Because guess what? We're messy too, Right? So what do you do? What's your response? And this is why Jesus gives us this passage. We're going to look a little bit closer into what he calls us to in this passage of scripture and how we can live this out in our everyday lives, which brings us to the next topic in this Read Jesus message series, which is reconciliation, Jesus. I love this this message here. I love that Mike brought it to us. and, And I love that that even the tagline of revisiting the man and his mission. When I look at Jesus as a man, and I look at Jesus and his life and how he lived it on the earth. You see from the beginning of time, it was called for Jesus to come into this world and take something broken, take a sinful people and reconcile them to his father. <coughs> that was his whole mission, his whole mission. And so Jesus calls us to be a, a reconciling people. Let me read this out of 2 Corinthians verses 5, 14 through 16. It says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard to to no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no no longer. This is important to note. We no longer view anyone or regard anyone from a worldly point of view. We're called to look at things differently whenever we look at Christ's example. And then it goes on to say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Take note of this. Jesus came into this world with a very specific mission and purpose. He came in to reconcile this broken world into his father that, that way back when, when Adam and Eve sinned and it was, they were separated from God, sin separated us from a relationship with God. Here is Jesus years, thousands of years later coming into this world for the purpose of taking what was broken, making it whole again and reconciling us back to God. And then don't miss this, that he has given us that same ministry of reconciliation. And we're called not to hold somebody else's sin against them. And then he ends with this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when Jesus left, when he left after he, he lived a perfect life and died a perfect death, and he came and he went into the tomb, and, and three days later he rose again in this perfect resurrection, he then left. And whenever he did that, he left and said, now I'm, I'm leaving this to you. And that's why we have the Great Commission. I'm leaving this to you. Go into all the world and preach this good news, this gospel of reconciliation. And here's the crazy thing. There is no plan B. He left the church with this responsibility to be his ambassadors in all the world, to reconcile the world to himself. He said, here you go, church. Here's your mission. I'm leaving it to you. And so when we see this reconciliation, Jesus, we have to look at it as this is also my mission. This should be my demeanor. This is what I'm called to do. And so each and every day, we have to choose to reconcile like Jesus. And so today we're gonna go on a journey together and we're gonna look at four different ways that we can choose to reconcile like Jesus. Here's the first one. We have to first choose to be humble. Man, when we're offended or somebody hurts us, probably the last thing on our mind is, is, is being humble, right? We, we look at that and we're hurt and we're like, how dare you, right? Like, I can't believe that you did that to me. I can't believe that you made me feel this way. And humility kind of goes out the door because we're hurt, because we're offended, because we feel like someone has sinned against us. You know, it's our default. But we have to choose to reconcile like Jesus. And Jesus was somebody who modeled humility over and over and over again. Think about this. Jesus was up before creation, before the creation of the world. He was with his father and he saw the power come into creation as God with his very own mouth. He spoke life into existence and Jesus was there because we see that he made this in his image, in our image, and he saw that it was good. Jesus was a part of that. Jesus was there when God displayed his power as he parted the Red Sea through Moses. Jesus was there as he saw nations rise and fall because God wanted it to be. Jesus was there whenever God called him and he put him on this mission in the silence. He said, I want you to go to this desperate and broken people and I want you to live among them to rescue them and Jesus who is all powerful almighty all knowing does the ultimate thing of humility and be- becomes a baby born of a virgin he can't do anything for himself he has to be taken care of fully god fully man and he displays this humility his entire life he does not tap into his his power that he has from being god Yet he lives a sinless and perfect life. And he displays this humility all the way to the end. At the end of his life, as he is, is finally carrying out this mission to go to the cross, and he is being ridiculed and being mocked and being beaten to a pulp, the cat of nine tails ripping into his skin, a crown of thorns being placed on his head, people spitting on him, mocking him, cussing at him, here we have Jesus who had every right to be offended and angry that these people were doing this at him, but because he lived a sinless life, this is his response in all humility. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Man, what a model for us that even, even if people are slinging hate at us, persecuting us, that our only response is humility. We have to say, Father, forgive them because this is coming from a place of sin. Father, forgive them. Have compassion on them. And this is a daily choice. In Colossians 3, we see this, that therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that we have to what? We have to clothe ourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We have to bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Man, I I, I am so humbled by this because I remember. I remember who I was before I met Christ. And I remember I had a sharp tongue. I remember that I left relationships in the wake because of how I used that sharp tongue. I remember how I was was a user of girls in relationships and left girls in my wake. And God looked down on me with love and said, "I forgive you, my son. I love you, my son." And we have to forgive as the Lord forgave us. And every single day, we have to wake up and make a conscious effort to put on the clothes of humility. And that's where it has to start as we choose to reconcile like Jesus. The second thing is you have to choose to be honest, you have to choose to be honest. Now hear me in this passage, we see this framework again in the verse, the first verse, it says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, go and point out their fault, name it and claim it that this is what you did against me. Notice that it doesn't say go and talk to all your friends about how this person offended you and talk about all your hurts or maybe even post it on Facebook, or maybe if you're a Twitter, maybe you can do a, a subtweet to somebody and they know it's them. No, first go to them and be honest with how you're feeling. Go and point out their fault. Now this isn't a license to speak freely and to say whatever you want. Remember we just talked about being humble no, you approach this meeting, you approach this, this going to this person with humility and you be honest about how they made you feel. You're not saying that they did this. This is like communication 101. You don't point fingers. You don't use these, these, uh, these phrases like you always do this or you never do this, right? This is communication 101. We say, this happened. and being honest that this is how it made me feel not saying I'm seeing it the right way, but can we come to an understanding because, because I'm feeling this way and I'm hurt. I'm offended by how you did this. I just need to talk to you about it. Ephesians 4.29 reminds us that, that, that we are called to not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only that, that is which, which is profitable for building others up. This isn't a license to speak freely and to speak truth. They say, hey, free speech, they told me to be honest at church. No, with humility, be honest about how you're feeling. Go to that person directly and speak to them. Don't push it down. Don't leave it unspoken because that's where the enemy takes root and it gives the devil a foothold to just destroy you from the inside. A third thing is that we have to choose to do hard things we live in a, in a culture, in a world where we do easy things, right? Like this is like, this is like we have an easy button for everything. We literally have a phone where we can, we, we forget dinner, right? We, have, we forget dinner like, let's call Chef Shuttle. it was bring dinner right here. This is good. You know, like I, I don't have to do a hard thing right now and, and spend some time in the kitchen. I just forgot. So here we go. I was in Atlanta this past, past uh, Christmas break and they have Uber Eats. Anybody ever heard of this? Uber Eats. It's where an Uber driver will go pick up a food from the restaurant that you want and bring it to you. It's not in Northwest Arkansas yet, so if you start it here, um, I need 10%. (laughs) So, but Uber Eats. Man, and we also, this is true of our relationships, right? We we constantly take the easy way out of relationships. We constantly do this. And we say, you know what, like it's not worth us getting in a tussle. So I'm just not even going to say anything. I just won't do anything. Or even worse, we say, you know what, I, I don't know if I could go to you and say how you made me feel. So I know I write better. So I'll just write it out via text or an email. And that sounds like just the better idea, right? no. <laughs> They can't see your affect. They can't, they can't see your feelings. They can't see how you're hurt or what they did. So don't send in a text. No, go to that person. Do a hard thing and sit right before someone and say, This is how you made me feel. And I know, as any introverts in the room, um, you won't raise your hand because you're introverted. But those unclaimed introvert hands, you know, this is hard. This is hard for you to sit before someone and say, this is how you hurt me. or This is how you made me feel. This is really, really difficult. It's hard for anybody, but especially for you. But God calls us to do hard things. And we so often take the easy way out and just not do anything with it. We're taught all of our lives that, that when we're faced with a hard thing, we do one of two things, right? We fight or we flight. We run away from it. And I'm afraid to say that, that too often in the church, we choose flight. When we're offended or we're hurt or somebody makes us mad or somebody in a communitas group doesn't, doesn't agree with us or they don't thank us or they don't encourage us, we choose flight. Because guess what? On the way to Grace Point today, I passed by 13 other churches. And so I'll just go try one of them out. Guess what? That church is messy too. That church is messy too. It does broken things too. God so wants us to be able to fight and fight well in these moments. And I'm not saying we, we should treat church as a, as a fight club or anything like that, but that we should fight well in the way that Jesus called us to, to do hard things, to sit in hard conversations. I do this thing and on Wednesday nights and I, I call it confessions of a youth pastor. Um, and I, this is just me being real with my past and who I am um, and who God called me to be. Man, my, my family was was kind of like Chris, Christmas Easter family coming to church, right? And so I remember as an eight-year-old coming into an Easter message and the, the pastor laid out the gospel. And he was like, you know, if you choose heaven you will or you choose Jesus, you'll go to heaven. If you choose to not follow Jesus, you'll go to hell and be like... I want heaven. That hell thing sounds not so good. So as an eight-year-old, I was like, let's just follow Jesus because that gets me to not go to hell. And so, but I had no idea what that meant. And and the pastor kind of just dunked me. And and then I was like on this road, but I didn't go back to church for a while. And then I was like, you know, I started thinking about it. And I was like, "There, there was something to that. This Jesus guy sounded pretty cool to give up his life for me. I want to know more about him. So I asked my mom and dad, hey, can you take me? They said, no problem. We would love that. They even started coming with me. And so they dropped me off and and I started learning more about Jesus. And and in sixth grade, I go to this preteen camp, okay? Sixth grade, it's called Mission Possible. So that kind of dates dates it. It was right when Mission Possible came out. There's a little rope that was on fire and it was like Mission Possible. And so through this like corny camp, God calls me. He calls me into student ministry. He says, I want you to be a youth pastor. That's what I want you to do before I was even a youth. And so in seventh grade, I show up to youth. I'm so excited because God has called me to be a youth pastor. Now I get to be in youth ministry and I get to learn what what being a youth pastor is. And over the next six years through junior high and high school, next six years, I have five different youth pastors. Five different youth pastors. One of them, left because of a moral failure with the student. One of them left because he couldn't turn off his attitude with the pastor. One of them left because he was spending too much time with the kids and not enough time in the office, right? He got fired because he was with the people. And over and over and over again, over the next six years, all I saw was hurt and this, this disunity and seeing it from the behind the scenes, just seeing so much dysfunction Because guess what? Church is messy. And every fiber in my being wanted to leave that church, go to somewhere where it was easier because I knew God called me to be a youth pastor. I'm like, how am I ever going to learn to be a youth pastor if I don't have one in my midst for more than a year? I can't get to know anybody. And through the midst of that, God kept on begging me to stay at this church And he called me to do the hard thing of staying. And all through it, he was reminding me, you know what? This is my bride. The church is my bride and I'm jealous for her. I love her. I have adorned her. She is beautiful. Would you love my bride well? Would you be a youth pastor that stays and respects my bride? Would you be someone who honors her? And even when it's hard, that you would fight for her. And so God called me to love his bride well. And that's why when I came to Grace Point, I knew that no matter how hard it was or how difficult it was with with people or with Mike or with anything else, that, that God called me to love his bride well and to honor her and to fight for her, even if it was hard. And so now I've had the privilege of being here for almost eight years And seeing graduating classes from 6th through 12th grade a couple times. Marrying students. Seeing them have babies. And God is reminding me over and over again that it's worth it to do hard things. Because the relationship and the fruit and everything that you get to experience when my bride is loved well. That's what I'm talking about. And so we have to do hard things. And and it's every day. We have to fight for these things. We have to fight the temptation to leave the church because it's hard or difficult. Philippians 2, Mike read it last week. He said, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound easy? No, oh, sounds hard. And God, every single day, calls us to do hard things so that we can work out our salvation because that's what reconciles the world to himself. And we have to do that in hard times with relationships. The fourth thing that we have to do is we have to choose to harness Jesus' spirit. Everything that I've just said, everything that, that we've talked about Humility and honesty and doing a hard thing, it's nothing without Jesus' Spirit. It's nothing without His embodiment in us as He lives it out through us. Second Corinthians, before he tells us about this ministry of reconciliation, he says that for Christ's love compels us. It's His love that starts this process. It's His love that, that we have to harness to be able to, to, to reconcile with other people. And all through Scripture, we see that that we have been made new, that we have a new self, and we're called to be like Jesus. We're called to harness His Spirit all throughout our relationships and our life. We're called to have a new mindset, which is the mindset of Christ Jesus. We're called to remain in Him because we realize that without Him, without Him, we can do nothing, but with Him, we can bear much fruit. We cannot do this without Jesus' Spirit. A few things that Jesus models that we can take note of and that we can harness is is number one, unconditional love. You know, Jesus did not look at me broken and messy Wade and say, you know what? I want to love you, but you're kind of messing up right now. So if you would do this and this and this, then I could really love you. No, he loved me unconditionally. Before he knew me, before he knew what I would do, he loved me. So why do we so quickly put conditions on the people that we love? Why do we so quickly put conditions and make them jump through hoops to earn our love? The second thing he does is he, he, calls, he calls us to undeserved grace. Grace is a free gift that is given to us. We don't, we don't earn it. We're not worthy of it. It's undeserved, and God gives it to us freely. So why do we make people feel like they have to deserve our grace? Why do we do that? The last thing is unending forgiveness. Jesus models unending forgiveness, that, that everything that, that we have done, everything that we are doing, and everything that we will do, will be covered by the cross, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't count our sins against us that he became the very righteousness of God and he took sin on our behalf. So why? When people hurt us, when they sin against us, why do we put a limit on the forgiveness that we give them? Because Christ gives us unending forgiveness. If you look a little bit close, more closely at this passage, you see, you see the, the, the thought, you see the transitions, you see the, the steps of what you're called to take if someone sins against you. And look at the very end. If they still refuse to listen, tell to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, this is what you're called to do. Treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Now listen, that that is not again a license to treat them like dirt. Like, all right, you don't want to reconcile, so guess what? I'm writing you off. No, let's put ourselves in this position. Say we are the one that offended somebody, and they come to us. Say I offend, like Daniel Franklin. He comes to me, and he says, "Wade, I, uh, you did this, and 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 uh, you know I don't know what in, what your intentions were, but it really hurt me. This is how it kind of made me feel," and I'm like. Well, that sounds like a personal problem, Daniel. Doesn't it? And I don't accept his offer to reconcile. And then, so he comes back and he brings Caleb and he brings Kevin with him and he comes to me and I'm like, oh, now you're gonna hang, like, you know, like gang up on me? Huh? That's what you're gonna do? And he comes to me, and I still am resilient. So then he goes and gets Pastor Mike and he's like, Mike, this is what's been going on. This is the steps that I've tried to take. Wade is still not not wanting to reconcile. So Mike, could you go talk to him? So Mike comes and he talks to me and he's like, hey, I've heard what's going on. And I'm like, well, you're not God. You're not my master. And I still write it off and I still don't even have a hesitation of wanting to come to reconciliation. What Jesus says in here is that that then I, the one who offended somebody, should be treated as someone who does not know Jesus. That you can't honestly go through all of these steps and be be asked to forgive or be asked to, to seek reconciliation. You can't look at Christ's love, his unconditional love, his undeserved grace, and his unending forgiveness and say, you know what, that doesn't apply to me. If you do that and you say that, then you're basically saying that I'm not a follower because there's no way that if we're truly changed and transformed into the image of Christ that we could ever look at somebody who was coming to us to reconcile, to seek unity and throw it back in their face. So we're to be, we're to be treated as someone who does not know Jesus. <laughs> and I love the disciples they, they make me sometimes feel a little bit better about myself. And then sometimes I'm like, wow. But right after this, I mean, literally right after this, Peter comes in. This is Peter who Christ built the, the rock, the church on. And Peter's like, so Lord, just exactly how many times should we forgive someone? I, I hear you saying that, you know, and I hear you talking about this. But like, I mean, is there like a number? I mean, like seven, I don't know. Does that sound good? And the reason he said that is because the Pharisees, they they used to teach that, that there was a number, there was a a quantifying number that they could put on forgiveness. And Jesus looks at him, and I I can imagine Jesus going, like, you're just not getting it. No, it's not seven times, but up to 70 times seven times. And it's not like Peter then went and wrote that down, he had a little notebook, like, okay, Um, 70 times seven, okay, 490 times. All right, sweet. Um, So then he put everybody that he knew on the top of the page. And every time they offended him and he forgave them, one. You know, like that's not what Peter did after that. Peter got it. He He said, there's no end to forgiveness. Just think about it. If we're on the other side of this and over and over and over again, we fall short of the glory of God. And God says, well, you used up all of your lives. 490 of them. So you're not getting into heaven. And we're called to give forgiveness. And that's what it all comes down to. Reconciliation comes to finding forgiveness for someone or accepting forgiveness from someone. And forgiveness is, is, is something that we give. It's the root word. It's something that we give. It's, it's not something that is necessarily earned. It's given it's a gift. And hold on to this, that forgiveness is not enabling sin. It's leaving justice in God's hand. So often we want to we make it right or we want to win an argument or we want to do this or we want to make people pay for the way that they hurt us. And you're not saying to that person that abused you or that person that left you or that person that hurt you, you're not saying, you know what, everything that you did was right, it's all good. No, you're not enabling that. You're not saying it's okay. You're just saying that I'm called in Jesus' spirit to harness that and say, you know what? I'm supposed to forgive as the Lord forgave me and I've abused people and I've left people and I've done this to people. And so I will offer you the same forgiveness and we leave justice in God's hand. And guess what that does? That takes the weight off of our shoulders to make them pay. And we find freedom and we find fullness. And here's the deal, we often want them to then suffer for the way, like, okay, God, you're a God of justice, so make them pay, make them lose their job, make them do this, make them make them suffer. But when we read about the character of God, we see things like this, that, that we're called to return to the to the Lord, for he is gracious and he is compassionate, he's slow to anger and abounding in love, and he is eager to relent. And not to punish. This is our God that we serve. So let's put justice into his hands. If we choose unforgiveness, church, what's at stake? If we choose to live in unforgiveness, what's at stake? For the kingdom, what's at stake is that, that the, the kingdom of God, it's really hard for the kingdom of God to advance if we are all living in hurt and unforgiveness, we're, we're on this mission of reconciliation. If we're not even accepting the reconciliation in our own life and we're not extending that to other people, how in the world will the kingdom of God advance like it's supposed to? How can we live out the Great Commission and tell people about the undeserved grace that, 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 that is offered to them through Christ if we are holding on to bitterness on our own? What's at stake for the church? Man, the enemy loves when we are divisive. He loves when we live in unforgiveness and hurt. He loves when we, we leave the church because we've been hurt. He loves church hoppers. And what he loves more than, than anything is that the people that, that take the mess in the church and how they're offended and leave the church forever. And say, I don't want to be a part of that. It's what the enemy loves. So what's at stake for the church if we don't choose forgiveness we don't reconcile we'll have disunity in john 17 jesus prays and he says that that the world will know that you're that you're my disciples by the way that the that you are one they will know that i am who i said i am by the way that you are one and by the way that you love one another what's at stake for me what's at stake for me living in bitterness and unforgiveness is no way to live at all when You came in today. You got a, you got a rock, a stone. You know, and when we choose unforgiveness, we we get handed this. We we hold on to it. For a lot of us, we're so hurt and we're so angry that we hold on to it really, really tightly, and we carry it around with us. We carry it around, and that hurt comes out on the people that we love. That hurt comes out on on the people that weren't even associated. And we carry this thing around. And it weighs us down. But over and over again, the reason God calls us to have this reconciliation is because he desires for us to have fullness in our life, freedom in our life. We're going to look into a story about what forgiveness looks like and how Jesus puts us into perspective in the way that we hold on to unforgiveness and the way that we point out other people's sins you watch this. I have sinned. Please forgive me. What do you say, Jesus? They're not wrong. I am guilty. My life is over. Wait, what is he doing? What is he writing? Answer us. What do you say? I say, he who is without sin, cast the first stone at her. my sister and leave your life of sin. How many times do we hold on to unforgiveness and, and anger and bitterness and hurt and allow it to cloud our judgment to what people in our lives deserve? How many Of these rocks, of these burdens, are are you carrying around? Am I carrying around? So, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take the model of these accusers. We're gonna first say that, uh, first of all, that, that I, I am guilty. I have sinned. I have things in my life. I've hurt people. Do this often. We're gonna have that perspective that then we're called to, to not hold other people's sins against them, to forgive as the Lord forgave us. And we're gonna respond by dropping the stone in one of these buckets. And this stone, it represents an actual person or an actual argument or an actual hurt. And so I challenge you, even if you drop this stone in there today, don't let it just end here. But make a plan to go to that person, to live out Matthew 18, to be honest, to be humble with how you're feeling, to do that hard thing and to do it in Jesus' spirit with the likeness of his spirit. And so the band is going to sing and we're going to play and, and, and you guys are going to stand and whenever you guys are ready to just drop this stone and say, I'm not going to carry this weight anymore. Drop it in one of these buckets, come down here and drop it. And, and here's the deal. It's not a solemn thing. This is not a solemn response. This is a means to celebrate church because people, as they drop these in the bucket, it will make a loud noise. And that is our call to celebrate because weights are being lifted off of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Freedom is happening. Chains are being broken. And so let's celebrate as we respond and as we put our weights and our unforgiveness into these buckets. Y'all sing with us. Y'all stand and let's respond.